Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ray Walsh. We're at Territorial Vineyards and Wine Company in Eugene. It's uh, March 10th, 2022. Ray, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get us started is why wine? Why wine? Whoa. <laughs> um, it's, I guess I didn't really choose wine, it chose me. Um, it was, I grew up in West Auckland and at the time it was the biggest wine region. However, you know, we weren't involved in a wine family, um, but it was always around where we lived and so wine was something was on the table growing up, um, something we were allowed to sip and try and you know, sherry on Sunday after church with the grandparents. Um, so it was not something forbidden or unknown mm-hmm. um, and uh, so it was something I was always intrigued with, you know, so uh, growing up. But never really thought of it as a career. Um, uh, and. As a teenager, it was kind of funny. We were, uh, my father was, as, uh, had a building business and uh, he also had a sideline business, which was uh, buying, selling, and restoring antique firearms. So we would get invited to the vineyards all the time to just shoot and, you know, as a teenager, what better than just shooting shit and nothing, you know, it's great. So, um, again, never really thought of anything as a career, but I got to talk to a lot of the uh, people working in the vineyards and vineyard owners. Um, so, as a young lad, I you know I went to college. Um, I I struggled and uh, kind of decided that uh, environmental science is too damn hard, and what am I going to do with it anyway? So I, I pulled out and decided to be like any other typical Kiwi and and you know bugger off, just um, what we call an OE, uh, overseas experience, and uh, just pack a bag and go. And. Uh, I did that for what was it, a year and a half, I guess, or close to it. I uh, um, went, you know, started off in Australia, went up to Europe, and uh, toured around and eventually bought a motorcycle and went down to Africa for a while and, and came back up. And, and getting towards the end of my monies, and the bike was starting to look pretty sad, and um, came into a small village in, uh, in Germany, a little village called Traben Trabeck. It's uh, about halfway down the Mosul River and um, met a family and they invited me in and the next day, I was, you know, when they were saying, well, you know, help yourself and leave when you want um, as they were going off to work and I thought, well, let me help you. It's the least I can do. So we went up the hill and up to the vineyards, very steep hills at that. Um, and we picked fruit that morning, I had lunch, and uh, then came down to the winery and, and uh, processed in the afternoon. And I just thought, this is the coolest thing, and I want to do this. Um, and it really inspired me. So like I said, I was towards the end of my trip, it was that time to put the, uh, the emergency call in, hey dad, I'm out of money, fly me home. Um, and so I did, I went home and, and went to school and, uh, and uh, worked on a fermentation science degree. And uh, haven't looked back, um, you know, I was very fortunate to, uh, 
get invites to work for some great companies in New Zealand, and um, it just it just went from there. I still enjoy it. I still like getting my boots wet and getting into it. What was it about that first that experience in Germany? What, what was so exciting about being in the vineyard, being in the winery? What drew you in? Oh God! Like I say, you're, you're up on a steep hill. You're looking down this, you know, little village below the Rhine, uh, the Mosel River, um, and you're you're picking grapes, and you know, you know the camaraderie amongst people. They would every time you would fill your basket, there would be a guy comes around with a petunias on his back, and you would have to empty it in. And every time you did that, he would pour you a little riesling, <laughs> which I was like, holy crap, no way! You know, I can't can't do that. And uh, so I was, you know. Like, I'd have the odd one, but I'd, most of them I'd say, no, I'm good. And uh, even so, I was feeling it by lunchtime. Um, and uh, not that that was the, the intriguing part about wine, but, um, but then, you know, uh, it was just, you know, then grapes went away, another cart came up, and on the cart was just, you know, bread, salamis, cheeses, just all laid out on the cart. Um, and uh, horse-drawn cart, and um, it's just just the whole romance of it, you know. Um, I just thought, this is just so cool. And then in the evening in the, in the winery, uh, working away, doing you know, whatever they asked me to do. And uh, when we were finished, you know, rolling up the hoses, it was, it was a very small production. It was uh, two families that owned it. So we were doing the processing in the basement of one family, and then the hoses would go down the street to the basement of the other family's home to where the tanks were for the fermentation. Um, and so you'd have to roll up down the street, mm -hmm. the, the cobblestone streets, the hoses in the evening, and, and then off to the pub for dinner. Um, like, what's not to like? That was just magic. So you mentioned you go back to New Zealand and then you went, went for, the, for education in wine. Tell me about that experience. Now that you were in school for something you actually were excited about, what was, what was different about that experience? Different because I motivated. I had I could visualize the end result, what I'm doing, what it was going towards. Um, I'm slightly dyslexic, um, so I definitely had a learning disability, and it, it's it was hard. You know, uh, sciences were never my strongest subject at, at school, but um, but the the motivation was there, so I pulled through it. And um, the the thing that really made me more attractive, I think, in the, in the work market in New Zealand is uh, not so much my grades at school or anything like that. It was more um, I would volunteer for anything, anything that was going. So whether it be um, a wine competition just to pour the wines to the judges or um, to get out and prune vineyards, um, well, the worst that everyone hates, the, the, the pulling a brush. Um, if it meant I was in the, the face of people and getting the opportunity to chat with them, I was, I was there. And so when I was invited to come talk to a, um, a winery, a Villa Maria uh, group, which is one of the bigger wineries in New Zealand, um, as soon as they turned up for the interview, they, they went, oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, everyone had seen me in the industry. Everyone knew who I was, uh, maybe not by name, but they knew me uh, by face. So, um, and someone at that, uh, Winery told me later, they said, we knew you had the job as soon as we saw you, because you were everywhere. So, yeah, so. So as you were in, in school and, and working toward 
working toward graduation, what, what were you thinking about as like a long-term plan? Did you have an idea? You, th <laughs> you said you could see, you could visualize an end result. So what was that end result? What were you hoping uh, for? I don't, I don't know if we, I don't know if I ever thought that far ahead. Uh, I just wanted to get in the business. Um, and, you know, and I wanted to do it right. And so uh, Villa Maria Group was, you know, was definitely one of the wineries at the time that was definitely high in all the awards. And that's a big part of, marketing uh, New Zealand wines as, as you know making sure you're you're getting your name out there award-wise um, wine spectator all that sort of stuff and so we were making a lot of noise um, making a lot creating a lot of good wines um, but I still wanted to move on and and so I was you know poking my nose around Cooper's Creek because Kim Crawford was the winemaker there and uh, and then he eventually took me on and um, uh, after I I think I bugged him for six months or a year, um, and uh, um, so I got to work with him, and he was magic, um, pretty pretty amazing guy um, to work for, and just his way of doing things, uh, totally different to what I'd just previously learnt, and and um, and just his attitude, you know, just you know, you're getting frustrated, pissed off, then go fire off some golf balls or a shotgun into the vineyard and, and come back with, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour later when you're ready to get back into it. You know, it was, uh, it was uh, just a great way uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to work with wine, really. So, uh, and so as far as the long-term career, no, I didn't, I still didn't really know. I know one thing, I remember talking to Kim that I wanted to go to the, the Pinot Noir conference down in um, uh, Centro Otago. Centro Otago was just, in a, you know, starting off and um, becoming the new thing and they were having the conference down there and I thought this would, be, this would be really good to go to. I kind of was really just starting to get intrigued by Pinot Noirs. Um, the delicacy, the prettiness. Um, we were working mostly more with bigger reds and as well as the white wines. Sauvignon Blanc, of course, it's the biggest variety in New Zealand. But um, so I remember Kim's answer. It was like, why? Why do you want to go hang out with those Pinot Noir people? They're just weird. And um, and I was like, why? Well, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Or wondered why he even thought of it that way. But um, so. I kind of was like, okay, um, took it with a grain of salt, but uh, but but was still always intrigued by it, um, and uh, so I decided to take a break. Ask him, could I just you know um, take off? And I wanted to visit the U.S. and uh, and Canada and just have a look around some other wine regions and kind of explore. So I started my trip in B.C. Uh, went over to the Okanagan and uh, was, you know, thought, wow, there's some pretty magical things going on here. Magical place, really neat. Um, came down to Washington and was quite impressed by just the quality of the big reds there. Mm -hmm. To Oregon and, you know, leaving California for my last because I knew some things about California wines and was kind of expecting that to be the highlight of my trip and realizing everything else was the highlight because I didn't know anything about it. But Oregon was the biggest of those highlights um, intrigued me the the um, the soil the valley here the people that were involved in the industry and it was pretty small industry back then you know in the, in the mid 80s and um, 
very passionate people, a few people I met. Um, and uh, I could see with their passion and the soil and everything that was going on that um, there was, this was a place that would really boom. And I, some of the wines were not my, quite, quite my cup of tea. Um, and I, I, you know, I wondered, I didn't know a lot of what their practices were, but kind of wondered if that was where an area of improvement could be. And, that, and I always locked that in the back of my mind, you know, this um, uh, place to come back to. And, and so I did, um, you know, um, about five years later, uh, I wrote to a bunch of wineries, uh, four wineries said, yeah, come on over. And uh, uh, of the four, I chose King Estate, mainly because um, the, just what they had to offer as far as uh, I would be seeing fruit from all over the valley. They were going to be working with 40 different vineyards. Um, they were going to be uh, pretty much new to the whole thing. So it was going to, you're going to be thrown in. They had the winemaker, Will Buckland, um, there. And uh, I was going to be assisting him with uh, really working with, uh, you know, pulling in through a little early, doing some base trials, learning what the nutrient values were, you know, pretty much getting all the information as quick as I could. So when that, that fruit did come in over the way scale, I could handle that over to Will and he, you know, he had a good grasp on what was going to be the best decisions to make for making those wines. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a huge feat um, to take on. I was just, it was mind boggling. I was getting a little stressed out, but, um, but a pretty cool feather to put in my cap. And, um, and that was, uh, that was my first introduction into the industry here in Oregon. What year was that? That was back in 93. 93? So it was pretty brutal. It was a pretty brutal harvest. Like we were unprepared. It's a new building, uh, a lot of unknowns, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the building was only half built. In fact, we were not even half built. And so, you know, a lot of construction going on at the same time. And um, hours were long. There were some days where you just worked as long as you could, and then, you know, after 28, 30 hours, drop and get whatever sleep you needed, and then get up and just keep going again as long as you could. It was, it was no sort of, uh, it was not, nothing, not about daytime or nighttime, it was just whatever you could put in. And it was, uh, it was pretty brutal. Um, so when they asked me to stay, it was like, hell no. <laughs> I, I got a good job in New Zealand, I'm heading back, you know, so. Um, but they asked me the following year that uh, would I be interested in coming back and doing it all again. And, you know, I, I laid down the conditions of, you know, not like that, you know, so, um, but uh, yeah, I'd come back if we can get it all organized, and so I did. So I returned in 94, yeah. What was your, outside of the kind of crazy conditions of which the harvest, uh, tell me, what was your, how did you compare making wine in Oregon, making wine in New Zealand? What were the, what were the similarities between the two, and was there anything unique or different for, for Oregon that you had to kind of pick up along the way? Well, I guess, one of the things, um, you know, when you're working with those bigger reds, you're not worried as much. You're trying to break the skins. You're, you know, you are trying to do extractions. Um, Sauvignon Blanc is a pretty hardy skin varietal, Chardonnay much the same. Um, so, you know, the, the real concept for me that was uh, completely different when I came to Oregon was, you know, gentle handling, being, you know, being respectful, being nice to the fruit. And I never really thought of it that way. Um, it was always about, production mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, 
So that was, I think that was one of the things that really made that light bulb go off for me. Um, like, you know, in order to be a good winemaker, you've really got to be passionate about the, the fruit, about what you're working with, the raw ingredient, and, and how to see that, and how to, to work with it, and, and um, be respectful of it. Um, and so that was a real different concept for me, and I think that's when I really started becoming more, I think, connected with winemaking as opposed to it being a, a career or a job. Mm. So um, I think it was, yeah, that was probably an important turning point for me. You mentioned all the different, all the different vineyards, all the different parts of the valley that King Estate was, was and still is working with. Tell me about getting to know Oregon that way. What, what did you see in terms of varietals and in terms of soil types and elevations and, and growing conditions? What, what excited you about Oregon? Uh, so the Willamette Valley for sure was pretty much mostly everything we were working with then. There was a little bit of Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, it was great to you know, be able to do all those lineups, tasting valley, you know, um, uh, everyone in the industry was starting to spout off the word tiwar, uh, tiwar. Uh, um, I was. I was not on board with that one just yet. I thought we were all, we were all still way too young in industry um, and still trying to learn mm -hmm. a lot, you know, what the fruit tastes like and uh, stuff like that. Um, so, but it was to be able to taste all that fruit and really sort of try and pick up what, what is, you know, Ribbon Ridge area like and what is, you know, Shahalem Hills or Mid Valley, Yola and everything down here. Um, it, it, it was great to be able to learn that and really kind of start locking in those taste profiles in my in my head and in my mind. Um, I guess with starting my own company, Capitello, uh, you know, as much as I was still younger then and had some colour to my hair, and I wanted to be in Portland because, like I mentioned earlier, I was a single dad at the time, and so Portland was, you know, definitely getting back to a city size that I was used to growing up was where I wanted to go um, and uh, start something up there. And I really started looking at what I wanted to do uh, for my own brand, and and uh, I thought in the North Valley I'd just be another one of the many. Um, and down here, you know, do I stay? Because I really was intrigued by the Southern Willamette fruit. Um, I really liked, you know, we are the headwaters of the Willamette Valley. The valley's narrower here. Um, I think a little more protection, uh, less rainfall here. We tend to get a pretty good profile on the skins, um, and so the depth of color um, and the bluer fruit tones that tend to come on in the fruit with the Southern Willamette vineyards, um, I thought was a, a little uh, more of the profile I was looking for. So that's why I decided to stay down here. Um, varietal wise, Pinot Gris, everyone knew me because you know, we were, we were the, the powerhouse of Pinot Gris for you know, being King of State. And, you know, that was a hell of a feat to be able to do. It was, it was fantastic having, um, uh, you know, Ed King with his vision, uh, his money to back that vision, um, and the support to be able to do that. You know, it was, it was great. Um, am I passionate about Pinot Gris? Maybe not so much, you know. Uh, it's a nice varietal. I think it's a great varietal for, um, for, for consumers because it is, you know, it's elegant, it's pretty. Um, you know, it's going to, uh, it's, most people can drink and go, oh, that's, that's a balanced wine, you know, so um, it's not a white wine I truly get passionate about. I'm very much a, you know, I'm a Kiwi, I'm a Sauvignon Blanc 
guy through and through. It was one of my frustrations at King because that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I saw Sauvignon Blanc fruit at uh, Croft Vineyard. Um, as far as I know, it's the first Sauvignon Blanc grown in the valley. And I wanted that. I wanted to grow that for King Estate, and they they wouldn't let me, and it kind of annoyed me. So, <laughs> um, so that's why I, I do it now for myself. Uh, and we make uh, um, I do four four different savvies here for, on some years five. So, so yeah. You had mentioned Kim Crawford's uh, warning about the kind of the weirdos and their, and their Pinot Noir. What 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 was your take on the people here who were making wine in Oregon and? And and and, about, and on Pinot Noir. I mean, obviously, you were still kind of getting used to Pinot Noir as as a, as a variety at that point. What did you think of it? What did you think of the Pinots being made here? And what did you think of the people making them? Yeah, I got busy when I. Um, so it wasn't my plan to stay here. Um, King Estate was always asking me to stay. I was like, mm. um, you know, like I said, I had a good home, good job. Um, I was. You're going to wonder all your life if you say no. That's that's the thing, you know. So I thought well, I have to. Have to do something. So I, I told them I said I'll apply for residency. They were trying to get me a professional visa. I said no. Um, I said I'll apply for residency, and if I get it, I'll stay. And if I don't, you know, we we tried, mm -hmm. and uh, and it was a way for me to kind of shut that chapter in a nice way for myself. And of course, I got the residency, and I thought, well, damn, that wasn't meant to happen. <laughs> um, so so um, I thought, well, in my mind, and and. and I think I may have told them too. I said, "Let's, let's just, I'll give, give you two years, but I still want to get on with my life." You know? mm -hmm. And uh, well, two, two, two years turned into ten pretty quickly. But getting to your question, the people um, in that two-year period that I'd set for myself, I, I really actively did get out. I really wanted to um, meet people, taste wines, uh, learn as much as I could from this uh, from this community and environment. Uh, and I, I met some wonderful people, and um, you know, top of my head, you know, top of my head, um, um, you know, Joe Dobbs and Adam Campbell and uh, Mark Velosic and you know, some some very um, like-minded people who were very passionate um, um, about what they were doing, like me. And uh, I got, you know, active in any uh, events as far as wine events, you know, the. Pinot conferences and stuff like that. So, um, winemaking styles, um, yeah, there was still things were all over the board. Um, yeah, um, I definitely saw that with Pinot Gris when I first got here. They were definitely all over the board from cloudy ones to oak aged ones, malolactic ones, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, we're still, we were still uh, a young community, still learning. That was that was the fun thing for me. It was still being an active part of uh, of learning. Everyone, you know, being involved in chatting with each other and trying techniques and tasting each other's wines. And uh, so that part was probably, yeah, also you know part of the fun part of being in this community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I was that was pretty welcoming. Mm -hmm. you know, so. They didn't see me as a weirdo, so I didn't see them that way either. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I don't think of such anyway. So. Not to your face, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned two years turning into ten. So was that all at King Estate that you stayed? Pretty much. Okay. That was, um, yeah, ten years. Uh, my uh, will decided to move on in uh, 1999, um, and. Uh, 
handed over the reins. Um, some came winemaker there at King's Stage. Uh, yeah, Will went back to his family's vineyard down in uh, uh, Sonoma. Mm -hmm. Has a great brand down there, so uh, the, the Buckland mm -hmm. brand. And uh, um, took over the reins and, and the, um, so what was it? It was my, it was one of my birthdays I came to the party and I just realized, hell, I'm getting older, you know, um, and uh, I, I, I've got to make that change. Um, I loved everything I did at King State. It was fantastic, you know, to have that um, opportunity as a young winemaker to have the support, like I say, with a, that, you know, a, a lovely luxury winery. Um, but, you know, we had grown and as you go up and you get, you know, promotions in your career and they come with more money, it was, you know, you, you take them and, you know, it's great. And, but all of a sudden I, I was behind a desk and, um, and that's not what I want. I, I don't want to be behind a desk. I want to, you know, be involved and get my hands dirty and be creative, uh, try things. And, uh, and I felt we were moving more into you know, being more consistent with our quality to to keep our market, you know, going there. And so it was definitely time I, I knew I had to break away um, and get back into a production size that I could be mm -hmm. hands-on. Um, so everything I'm doing here is pretty much myself. I, I have part-time assistants um, for harvest and maybe a couple other busy periods of time, but I do everything myself. Um, I really like to be in here and even if I've got nothing to do I'll be in here and find something to do or touch my barrels or taste my wines or do something. Um, try things. As far as I'm concerned if I stop and get complacent and you know it's time to take off my hat, it's time to try something new. Um, I, I really want to be innovative and experimental and and uh, and still learn and and I don't care if I make mistakes if it means I learn something I'll, I'll do it you know so. so in that time and you decided to start your own thing you mentioned kind of trying to figure out where you wanted to be tell us about starting a brand coming up with a name coming up with an idea of what you're going to make and where you're going to make it and how you're going to sell it kind of all, how did all that come come to fruition well leaving King Estate and it was hard you know you get quite used to that uh, that umbilical cord of a nice salary, um, and it definitely hard to cut that. Um, I'd so, and I was looking at. I knew I wanted to get back into small production, um, and you know, small wineries don't have that sort of budget. They just can't afford that. And uh, so it was a little bit of wow. If I'm going to work for peanuts, do I work for myself? Um, and. Um, and then I was also doing some consulting to support myself as well. And um, well, you know, starting a brand and getting it up and up and running. Um, I quickly learned that consulting wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, it's because I wasn't connected to those wines as much. I would give my advice, I would taste them, but then I was, I was out of the picture and mm -hmm. how those wines eventually m moved on, um, whether they took my advice or not, I, you know, mm -hmm. you know, was never really always known. So, um, so it was, um, it was fun turning that page and ramping down my consulting, um, as my own brand started up. The name, I guess, uh, I didn't want to use my own name. Um, I, 
a couple of reasons. Um, I chose, you know, I didn't know if I was going to stay here, didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I had, you know, I was a single dad, already had a son here, um, and the US is his home, and proudly so. Um, so I did become a citizen um, to figure, you know, I never want to have that. Um, uh, sort of door closed. I always want to make sure if I do leave that I've always got that means to come back and visit my my, my own kids. You know, mm -hmm. so um, so um, so I didn't want to have my brand named after myself in case I want to sell it, and I didn't, just didn't want to sell my name. I also felt uh, there's there's always some ego in the industry too. I, well, what winemaking is it's it's artist, artistry and ego. You know, um, it's, it's pretty much what motivates us. And um, so to say I don't have any is probably you know that's you know I would be a lie I guess too. So, but um, I, I just started thinking about what what's going to be a name. Um, I went over to Italy with my son, and we saw these capitellos, uh, which are shrines that would host a statue of uh, a saint or a picture of Mother Mary or something like that. Um, they'd be in the vineyards, they'd be in the, the small villages. Um, some of them would have a prayer stoop on them where you could kneel. Um, I f really kind of uh, like that connection to the vineyard. I like that name. Um, so we'd thought, what the hell? That'll do. You know, so uh, without really thinking later how it might be a little weird having this Italian name doing Oregon wines and being a Kiwi. Um, but anyway, um, it is what it is. Um, and then I kind of went to um, uh, a, a lady that I knew here in town, a graphic designer who had uh, done a lot of the initial work for King Estate and said, I, I need a label. And uh, she goes, OK, what's your ideas? And I go, well, I don't know. That's your job. And, <laughs> and she goes, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to at least have the ideas. You know, come to me when with something. So I sat down with a doodling of a little man. I put the, the stars of the Southern Cross in the sky uh, to kind of can make that connection. And I uh, thought, it's pretty boring. Um, you know, threw the moon in there. and. Then some wine bottles in the sky, just for the sheer hell of it. And I thought, um, I'm heading the wrong track now. And uh, I went back to her and I said, I don't know. I'm just I'm coming up a blank. This is you know what I've been doing, but it doesn't seem right. And and she goes, That's perfect. That's really all you need. You know, that's that's great. And and pretty much just put my doodling on a label. And um, and I you know I was really looking for something a little um, whimsical. Mm -hmm. Um, but Wim's called gimmicky, you know, it's a, it's a fine line. So, but anyway, it's a, the label is, we created a label and, and that's been that. Um, and then, you know, it's been pretty much me putting the, the wines I'm making to, to, those, to those bottles and making sure that I believe that every wine that goes on behind that label, I, you know, I stand behind. I, I believe it's value for money that uh, people get. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned obviously a desire to make Sauvignon Blanc, mm -hmm. uh, obviously Pinot Noir. T tell me about other things you want, made or wanted to make, and, and finding sources for, for the fruits you want for the groups you wanted to make. Well, Pinot Noir definitely. It's um, it's that's I love it here. It's like the the complexity you can get with Pinot Noir here in Oregon. It's fantastic. Um, one of the things I learnt was um, uh, I well, felt I learnt um, was Pinot Noir needs time. 
And I feel a lot of wineries are dictated by the next harvest, um, by economics. Um, you know, the wines are in barrel 11 months and then next harvest is breathing down on them and they get that wine out and get it bottled and free up those barrels so they're all ready and, and we'll start the whole process over again. And, um, and I thought, why? Why let that next, you know, you put all your heart and soul and all that wine and you're aging it in a barrel and now you're letting the next vineyard vintage um, dictate your winemaking. And I just didn't believe in that. Um, so everything I do here, I'm, I'm rotating two sets of barrels. So they can stay in barrel as long as I feel they need to, whether it's 14 months and they're only just using that a little bit extra time or, or 18 months, 24 months. Um, everyone gets that opportunity to stay as long as I feel it needs. Um, and that's a financial commitment, both in the extra barrels, the evaporation losses, the time, the space you need, everything. Um, but that's what I believe in. And the beauty and the smoothness, the velvety tones, everything you get in Pinot Noir when you do that extra time in barrel is worth every penny. Um, the, just the, the roundness, the balance, um, the beauty. Um, it's, it's just magic, you know, when you create that, it's absolute magic. And, and that's what drives me. Um, I have to say that's probably the biggest. Um, yes, you mentioned Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, I, you know, I can't get away with it. Uh, I'm still producing in New Zealand as well, both Pinot Noirs and Sauvignon Blancs um, for Capitello wines um, that I import back here. So uh, still doing two harvests a year. Um, and uh, so making my Oregon style Sauvignon Blancs and my New Zealand style Sauvignon Blancs is, is really fun. Uh, same with the Pinot Noirs. Nothing I do is the, the same. I'm not doing it to measure apples for apples. Um, it's coming back to like a initially said, um, you know, looking at the fruit, looking at what it really wants and needs um, to become a great wine. Um, so my, my winemaking style um, and techniques in New Zealand are 100% different to what I do here. Um, so, um, and then Sauvignon Blanc, yeah, I'm doing, uh, as you see behind you, the, the concrete eggs. Um, I love those for Sauvignon Blanc. I did one as a trial. Um, I think I was one of the first in Oregon to ever, um, maybe Archery Summit, maybe in the other one, um, we were maybe the first two to do uh, experiments with concrete eggs. Um, and I totally believe in them and their magic for Sauvignon Blanc. They, because we get more of a, uh, slightly more of a tropical fruit character, uh, whether it be a cool year or a warmer year, I always seem to get more of that tropical fruit, not quite the, the grassy jalapeno green um, that I get from New Zealand. And so, I want to just really round out and make it more of a balance to that, that tropical vein. I think the eggs work well. Um, I've branched out. We are now also doing a, a new varietal. Um, um, from as far as I know, the only planting in Oregon, uh, the Elkhead Vineyard, uh, Sauvignon Gris. Mm. And um, we've just bottled our third vintage of that and it sells like hotcakes. Um, it just blows out the door within two or three months. Um, and it's a really fun varietal. It's, it's got, it's not quite as grassy green as a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and it has some of those floral tones that you get from, from Pinot Gris skins um, coming into it. And just is a beautiful, smooth um, halfway road between that, that Pinot Gris, Sauvignon Blanc um, uh, varietals. And, uh, and of course it's 
it's a it's a conversation opener. When people see that, they just assume it's a blend, and it's not. It's no, that's that's the varietal. So, uh, um, and it, it, it's uh, you know, it's it's fun to have that reaction with people and communicate with people and. Uh, and then enjoy your wine. That's always the pat on our backs that we get when uh, we see someone happy that enjoys your wine. And you mentioned sparkling also. Yep. So tell me about how that came to be. Well, again, it's, it's um, well, I guess two things. One, I want to tease myself. I really want to push my boundaries and um, see, see what I can do and um, play. I'd only done sparkling once, um, and that was with Kim Crawford back at mm. Cooper's, and it was, it was okay. Um, and uh, but I really wanted to do that. I've, I've tasted some great sparklings, ones that just a rich, full, uh, like Krug, and you think, holy cow, how do you make that? You know. And so that was my inspiration. It was really to make something just rich and fat and luscious like that. So, um, and those are definitely you know longer tirage times. Mm. So again, bearing money into the the big hole of the winery and uh, so I've been doing that I've been doing trying aiming for five-year tirage times on my sparkling wines um, they're all non-vintage um, I'm aging um, just like I was doing today putting some of my I've made up my blend and then putting some of it back to barrel which will get put away to blend in future years um, I try to hold back about 25 percent 20 to 25 percent to blend away in future years um, sacrificing the aroma profile of that stuff that I'm putting in a barrel to for for the texture for the fatness um, that I can give to my blends in future years um, it's yeah it's fun it's fun to create that uh, that complexity that varietal um, I don't personally drink a lot of sparklings um, I, I love tasting them and trying them and experiencing them with them but uh, um, and that's what is the other aspect of what got me into it. My wife does uh, and loves sparkling, so she was all, let's do it, let's do it. So <laughs> it's become uh, yeah, a, quite, a, quite a substantial part of the profile for Capitello now. So you talked about making the same wines or the same varietals in two different places at the same time and how different that is. So I'm, I'm curious about how do you how do you know what you're looking for in each place? How do you, and how do you, what, what's, is it, is it, are you looking at numbers? Are you, are you tasting? Like what, what is it, where's the sweet spot for what the wine should be, what an Oregon one should taste like, what a New Zealand one should taste like? How do you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I guess, like I said, I'm, I'm, I really feel and look for the complexity we get with Oregon, and that's what I try to show off. Um, New Zealand, it's about the, I think, the intensity that you get with varietals. And so that's what I'm trying to show off there. So with my Sauvignon Blancs, um, I'm picking them a little earlier. Um, sometimes pick a portion of it, probably a little earlier as well, to get more greener tones, those jalapeno notes um, that just scream in the, in the, in the aroma profile. And uh, you know, use um, some uh, yeast profiles and stuff to really express the thiols and, and uh, bring that out. So um, Pinot Noir, much the same way, I'm, I'm doing cold soaks or more extracted methods um, and uh, really trying to bring out 
the flashiness. So um, my wife has nicknamed my wines. Um, she calls my, you know, my Oregon wines the the, the, the classy ladies, and my my New Zealand wines the, the sassy girls. And um, and because that's how she experiences them, and um, and that's a pretty much a profile of them. Um, yeah. And so here, like I mentioned with the Oregon, I'm doing longer barrel ages. I really want to, you know, babysit them and, and go for more of that that just that smooth and classic um, and complex. What about from a logistical perspective of, of having wines and it's vintages yeah. across the world from each other? How do you balance that you, for your, from your perspective? Yeah, it can be a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> but I love it. I love the challenge. I love the, you know, um, getting down there. You know, it's just uh, the, the winemaking community down there in Marlborough of New Zealand, just the top of the South Island. It's fantastic, and I have a lot of great friends in the industry there. And, and uh, uh, you can't drive home in the evening without, you know, seeing waving or bumping into one of them at least. Or, um, or uh, certainly, if you go down to the local pub just to finish the evening with a with a glass of wine or a beer. Um, and that's really cool. It's really fun. Um, so it's a it's a great community. Um, and. Uh, I would hate to deprive myself of that. So I enjoy that aspect of getting down there and um, being a part of it. As weary as it can be when you're, you know, there's some nights you're thinking, why the hell am I doing this? And you're tired and you just want to go home. Uh, and you're missing your kids back here and stuff like that. Um, it is fun. And it means that it's, it's the second time in a year that I get my hands dirty really being with wine. Um, and. Uh, so logistically wise, um, you know, I have to lean on some other people. There's a lot with the shipping and everything else. And, and uh, I'm lucky that I have good friends down there. And, um, and there is, you know, logistically it's, it's set up. You know, most wines are all exported. It's, it's an island. Uh, they make far more wine than they could ever consume. Um, we talk pretty funny because we do consume a hell of a lot. Um, but. Uh, but most of it gets exported all the same. So, um, so uh, yeah. So logistically wise, there's people there that can make it all happen. Uh, but uh, those have been, you know, that's been a couple. We've had a couple of difficult years. So getting down there has been a little more challenging, and logistically, it's it's been really hard. And um, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back down there this year. It's going to be a little easier. There's no quarantine, at least as long as I prove. Uh, negative on my uh, COVID tests, and, and, uh, and of course, I have my proof of vaccine. So um, it's uh, it's you know it's it's there. It's a challenge, but uh, if it wasn't a challenge, it wouldn't be fun, right? So, yeah. <laughs> How much time do you have to spend in New Zealand on a normal year to to, to make the wines you want to make there? How, how long do you have to spend there? It's. Again, it's a challenge because you know you got you got family here. It's hard. I can't pull them away. Um, it's always been a difficult part because of school. Mm -hmm. so you've got to kind of primarily be in one place to the other. So right now we're here in Oregon. Um, so my uh, my vintage time down there is about six weeks, um, and you can you know ask any family person six weeks a long time away. Um, so you know when you're in the heart of harvest, you're, you're, your mind's pretty much buried. So that helps you get through. It's when at the end of harvest when things start to quieten down a little bit. That's that's probably the most difficult part for me. Mm -hmm. um, the um, and then I'll 
I'll get down there whenever I can for you know just real quick stints, whether it be three, four, five days. Um, last down there, taste wines, get bottling done, logistical stuff. Um, see some families, get you know family members and um, and friends and drink far too much again and get my accent tuned up and then get on a plane and get back here. So that's pretty much the, uh, the, the way it goes. So you told me about, uh, before we started talking about this space and you've been here for, for a few years now, yep. where were you previous to this and how did you, fi how did you find this space? Um, actually this space was when I first started Capitola, this is where I did come. Um, the um, winemaker was here prior was, um, I'm not sure if it was a little threatened or how he felt, or, but um, I got the feeling it was time to leave. And so uh, I went up to another local winery, Sweet Cheeks, um, who had an Australian winemaker, Mark Nickel, um, who uh, allowed me to come in there and play around with my wines there, which was, you know, it's really nice of any winemaker that'll do that. It's because it's an inconvenience and, and uh, you don't know, like I say, what ego you're going to come up with, you know, and uh, Harvest will certainly bring that out in anyone's home. Uh, true colors. So, um, really nice of them to do that. Um, and then in 2013, uh, the owner of one of the owners of this place, Alan Mitchell, uh, who manages all the vineyards that we work with here for the territorial brand, um, came back to me and said he was always impressed with the wines I'd made, especially in those challenging years, 2007, which we had buckets of rain and he tasted my wines and he said that was that was an amazing wine you made and um, and uh, he felt you know challenging years were always here in the Willamette Valley whether it be you know rain or um, weather conditions and and you know they still are challenging and now fires are the new one um, and he really felt that was the change he needed to make he needed a, someone here that really wanted to be able to um, be on the ground that could really uh, deal with those challenges and make great wines. Uh, I told him flat out, I said, well, the, the, <laughs> the key ingredient to the success of my uh, 2007 was I, I looked at the weather forecast and saw six days of heavy rain and I thought, that's depressing. And I bought a plane ticket and I just went to New Zealand. I thought, I can't deal with that. And uh, just went down there for five days. and. Um, thought well, I, I better stay on Oregon time so it meant I was getting up at four in the morning and having sitting outside watching the sun come up and birds chirping having my cup of coffee and and it really put me in a great space you know and a mindset and uh, when I got back here I was just like okay let's go and um, and I looked at everyone else who was absolutely frazzled from watching six days of heavy rain and and I just you know went out there and I got out in the vineyards and I looked at what was going on and I think it just helped me make really good decisions and uh, um, that year and um, it worked. <laughs> That's what it takes. So. so when he approached you in 2013 then, what did you tell him? Well, it was, it was interesting. He took me on um, and uh, and of course then, yeah, 2013 came as another difficult year, exact same thing, you know, we just, everything was lined up to be another great year, um, just like 2007 had been. Uh, and then right on the eve of harvest, um, you know, we got that weather forecast of heavy rains coming in, and really heavy rains, in fact. Um, and 
and I had to tell Alan it, it'll be okay, you know. And and he's up in his lives on his vineyard site, and he's got a an iron roof, and he's hearing that rain come down, going, "Holy shit!" You know, I've just finally got this winemaker. I'm paying him all this money, and I'm going to lose it all, you know. And uh, and yes, I'm always a little concerned, but. It rains every year here, and it seems like winemakers, uh, we have short memories, and we, we forget that, and the first rain cloud comes over, and we piddle our pants and get into a little tizzy, and it's like, no, you know, just calm down and deal with it and get out in the vineyards and, you know, look at your fruit and see what it's telling you to do. Um, and yes, there was some. Um, there was one vineyard I decided to pick. Um, I could see the the fruit was the skins were starting to soften and um, it was you know it wasn't a hundred percent there where I would have liked it to be but it was pretty damn close um, and I felt it's probably not going to handle that rain very well and um, I chose to pick that one the rest of the fruit I thought no I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let it hang I'm just gonna wait it out and we'll you know we'll um, we'll work with that we've got a little bit in just to cover our beds and we'll let the, the rest stay and um, you know, let it be what's going to be, and and it's important. I think you've got it's part of why we are doing cold climate winemaking. It is to show off the expression of that vintage, and um, I don't want to get into factory winemaking and genericing, making it the same year in year out. Um, we, you know, we're more often not now getting warmer years, which I tend to, I'm not as excited about. They're they're flashy. People love them. They're not the magic of that true Willamette Valley Pinot Noir that I'd grown up to know. Um, and so, you know, I'm not scared. I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I kind of like some of those more challenging years and, and that expression that you're going to get from them. Except for fires. I don't need that. <laughs> We're going to come back to that in a second. So hold that thought for a moment. Yeah. So tell me about You've you built your brand at this point. You've been you've been doing your brand for for over a decade. When you when you when you come back here, uh, and now you're taking on a whole other big project. So tell me about balancing that and, and making sure that all of the wines you're making get get the attention you want them to get in, in a given year. Well, it's pretty easy. Everything's on a one level here. I've got the lab in one corner. So um, you know, I'm passing every wine that I work on every day that I'm in the cellar. Um, it's uh, you know, for for a winery on a budget, it's a really uh, well laid out winery. You know, it's not it's not a glorified gravity-fed bloody blah or anything like that. But it's a very functional and and well laid out winery, mm -hmm. and um, I can logistically do everything here uh, single-handedly, um, working you know my own brand, the owner's brands, ter territorial, um, and you know five I'm sorry seven of the clients that I have in here. Um, I pretty regimentally, you know, choose uh, a certain amount of um, wines that per day that I'm in the cellar to taste through, and so I'm getting through my winery um, uh, over the course of uh, two to three weeks, every wine being tasted, um, and then get, start back and continue on. You know, um, obviously you're going to get tasted more so, and we're getting close to bottlings, trials, and stuff like that to be made. Um, there's two things that I'm really trying to do, and um, um, you know, I don't have my own personal vineyards, um, so 
my philosophy there is really to make the best wine, the most balanced and prettiest, everything I can do. Um, I think that's one of the areas I do see still and some of the wines made, made out of Oregon is the, not always the balance is there and I think that's part of the key um, to, to really nail in on. Um, but uh, with all the other clients who I am working with here who do have their own vineyards, it's, uh, my mindset's different for them. It's about the expression of their vineyards and that's what I really aim to try and offer. And uh, I don't want every wine to come out of here going, oh, that tastes like a Ray Walsh wine. Mm. Um, I would feel like I failed if that was the case. So, um, so yeah, those really are expressions of where they came from. And, and mine is um, the expression of the, the best wine I can possibly make, the, uh, the expression of that vintage. Mm -hmm. So since you brought it up, let's talk about 2020 a little bit. Yeah. And you mentioned obviously COVID and it's, and it's kind of the, the impact it had on your, your travels. Uh, I'm curious about any other impacts it had and, and adjustments you have, you've had to make the past couple of years to, to the way you've worked as it relates to the pandemic. Well, as far as the fires are also. Well, so fires are going to be the next question, so you can answer it now. Oh, or, okay. we, or we can get to it next. So, yeah. The, it was it was heartbreaking actually um, you know it was uh, such a big unknown so um, you know uh, I'm in my own little world in here I must admit so you know COVID or not COVID I'm in the cellar I'm, on, I'm in my own little world and I'm and I'm happy as a you know pig in mud when I'm in here you know, this is where I want to be um, yes I have the tasting room uh, building as well um, that retails our wines and. Uh, I'm in there on occasion and that was depressing. It was depressing to see that joy gone, just exited, you know, no people in the taste room. We, you know, we'd closed it down, um, uh, curbside sales only and, you know, trying to morph the, the new way and means of um, trying to uh, work with the new situation you know are we even going to financially survive this i did not know i wonder if that was the end of my my brand and career um so it's quite scary you know and then um soon after that um you know we had the the, the black lives matter movement um and um and then being being a, a downtown urban winery and I was right next to the, where the, um, the jail and the police station are, so big protests uh, and of course some of those protests unfortunately got out of hand um, and uh, so you know every day I was coming down the street wondering if my test room building was even there, uh, were the windows still going to be there. Um, it was gut-wrenching, it was really, really hard. Um, so part of the magic is, you know, really the, the magic's not just the wine, it's the people, you know, the people who enjoy that wine and sit down with food or in your tasting room and tasting and, and the joy it creates and just, um, yeah, ha having that gone was, was, was brutal, brutal on the, on the wallet, brutal on the, on the, the energy, mm -hmm. so, um, and so, you know, we just had to morph and do what we could and um, as things started opening up, yeah, get a marquee 
tent up outside and try and make an environment that was um, safe and inviting. Um, you know, put trees under it and lights and um, and uh, space tables out with um, you know trees and everything in between them and and. Uh, give a place where people could still come and, and uh, still experience part of that old normal life. And it was kind of fun. It was kind of fun to see on a freezing cold, even snowy night, people come out and enjoy it and, and, uh, and make you realize that like, man, we really have got so conditioned to always being warm and cozy inside and we don't need to be, we can be outside and still do this and enjoy wine and people and friendship and family. So. That joy was starting to come back, and it, it was it was really great. Um, and so, you know, there was a kind of a glimmer glimmer of hope there, um, and and that's basically what you've got to lock onto in situations like that is the hope, and the you know hopefully you know tomorrow will, will bring more, better days. Um, and we you know we're slowly we're surely getting there. Mm -hmm. um, and to think we hadn't had enough and like, we were just talking about fires, oh my God, you know. So the next challenge comes about. Um, and I'll take on any challenge. I'll happily take on wine challenges and enjoy it and learn from it. And, um, and fires were definitely going to be the new one to learn from. Um, I immediately got in touch with some of my buddies, um, uh, Nick Goldsmith, who's a consultant down in California, former Kiwi who used to work at Cooper's Creek where I'd worked in New Zealand. Uh, he's done a lot of consulting, um, up, he does, still does a lot of consulting up in BC which has gone through fires um, and um, Argentina, Chile. Um, and uh, got in touch with some of my New Zealand Australian buddies who had gone through the situation and, and sort of see you know what to do and pretty much most of them just said pull the plug. Um, and, you know, I, I knew I, I had been involved with Wine Secrets um, previously and, and done some work with them. And so um, I was very familiar with all the modern um, mechanical techniques. Um, so I had all that knowledge. And I just felt that, um, yes, you can, you can get rid of some of the, the smoke taint. It's not permanent. Um, it does come back. And I could make an okay wine, but it's not going to be a good wine. It's not going to be a wine I can stand behind with that label on, my label, um, or my client's labels. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, I chose to pull the plug. We, we dumped everything. Um, I think all, all except for a little bit of the what we had from the Croft Vineyard, um, and it was the one area least affected in in, in Oregon, uh, in Willamette Valley. But everyone was affected. Everyone. Anyone that says their wines weren't ours, I'm sorry. But um, that one didn't. We kept four barrels of that, so we could have something at least to show off the expression of that vintage. And and that's the reason. Just four barrels, hundred cases. Um, everything else we, we dumped and it was thousands of gallons. Um, I didn't want to sell it, I didn't want to make it someone else's problem and I uh, didn't want them coming back to me later and saying, mm, I kind of wish I hadn't bought that. Um, I just felt it was the best thing for the community was to dump it and 
it was foul. Um, I remember dumping one of the tanks first, a 2,000 gallon tank of it, and I went home that evening and I was really just sick to my stomach of um, physically, not, not, not in a mental term, but physically. Um, my stomach had just turned from that smoke, that ashiness, like you just been standing next to a barbecue all day, barbecuing something, and, and your stomach was just full of smoke. And uh, it was I, was, I just was ill and went to bed. Um, so, you know, if it's doing that just from the aroma, why would you want to put that in your belly? <laughs> so, um, it was horrible. I've never had to do that before, put wine down the drain. Um, but uh, all said and done, I'd, I'd, I knew I'd done the right thing. It was like ripping the Band-Aid off and coming back in the next day, uh, I'd, I knew I'd done the right thing. And the relief it gave me, because now I, it's no longer my problem. I don't have to worry about how that wine's going to taste when it goes in the bottle, how that wine's going to taste down the road. Um, am I going to be able to sell it? What marketing gimmick am I going to have to come up with? What bullshit, you know, um, am I going to have to do to make it all work? And, and no, I don't have to do any of that. It's done. And I can go home and I can just garden and <laughs> don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, so, um, it, but it was funny being here in the winery and not having that wine to work on, mm. you know, not having anything to give some love to that year. That was, that was a little bit of a bummer, but, um, but it was not a bummer to have that, 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 that gone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel I can fix most problems, just about any problem in the wines, um, uh, but that one, that one had me stumped, and uh, it was, yeah, it's, it's a bummer, but we move on. But better times, right? <laughs> Well, 2021 harvest, obviously a nice way to bounce back. So tell us how those are doing so far. Fantastic. Oh, my God. That was, it was a, a relief. Uh, we got a good fruit set. And we were all like, yes, here we go. You know, the, the conditions were good. The spring was nice. The summer was nice. Um, well, let's there get were, back. There, to, were few, there were a few days. Yeah, uh, <laughs> let's get back. To, the summer was bloody hot. We normally always experience, you know, one to two weeks heat spike where we'll get into the 90s maybe 100 degrees um, I don't like them so much you know those heat spikes but they they happen mm -hmm. uh, 2021 was a massive it was like two months of that and uh, it was pretty alarming and I was like oh crap we're really in for a high alcohol year and I'm not a high alcohol winemaker I don't like them um, uh, I really think high alcohol inhibits the aroma profile, the beauty of the wine, little kind of bitterness that the alcohol gives to the finish. Um, they're just not a wines, they're not wines I enjoy. Um, balance, basically what it comes back to, the wines gotta be balanced. Um, so I was a little concerned with walking into that. Um, I was amazed once we started getting out into the vineyards um, as the fall weather started coming on um, and seeing that the sugars weren't really through the roof as I expected in, in a lot of the vineyards. Um, and uh, it seemed that it was just so hot the vines just shut down for the most part of that period. Um, and so they were in a pretty good track for time-wise for a normal harvest, which was bizarre, weird. Um, uh, that, and then that fall, it was like the vines were on steroids. They were so ready to go and they went and they moved fast uh, at that time. So really had to be on your toes for picking decisions. Um, and 
got the fruit in here and I was ecstatic. The quality of the white wines was magic, absolutely magic. Um, they're just, even Pinot Gris that um, I might not be as exuberant about with my passion. Uh, I was going, wow, this is just amazing. This is like when you really get down to the, the, uh, the grittiness of the core of a pear, when you really get to the seedy um, tones of a pear, that is just magic. And I love pear tones and so and Pinot Gris when you get that. Um, so um, yeah, everything was the expression of the fruit. It's fantastic. Um, Pinots, a little bit of, for the most part though, they're pretty, pretty nice. Um, I'm, I'm really, really happy. There was the odd ones that um, ended up being high sugars that, um, and for the maturity level, they still weren't as mature as I'd like them to be for those sugars. Um, and so, yeah, we'll probably do a little de-alk on those ones because they're, they're, they're higher in, al in alcohol. But, uh, but for the most part, I would say, yeah, 90, 95% magic, yeah, and the volumes were up, so that was uh, also the blessing about it. So, yeah, we needed it. So you talked about uh, your initial impressions of Oregon wine, an inter interesting path, because you came and visited, then you came back, then you came back, and you, you weren't here consecutively, so you got to kind of see some growth in between. Now that you've been here for a while and you've seen the massive growth of the industry in the past couple of decades, t tell me what the biggest changes are in the industry. What, what have you seen that is, that is different now? Uh, what does the industry look like to you now in 2022? It's, yeah, it's changing for sure. You know, um, I think, you know, all, all us winemakers of the past few generations, or more than a few, five generations, um, um, and, you know, I've been part of that for three of those um, decades. So, um, you know, we've made a, a pretty good mark, a pretty good splash um, and, and noise in the, in the marketplace. And I'm really proud to be, uh, uh, you know, 30 of those 50 years um, being, being a part of that. Mm. And, uh, uh, and it's deservedly so. There's some fantastic wines, you know, um, and, uh, and, and some fantastic people making those wines here in, in the Willamette Valley. And, uh, but we definitely, yeah, with that noise and, um, and raising eyebrows of outsiders, they're coming in and uh, it's, it's a changing time and we are definitely seeing the bigger companies um, the foreign companies um, coming in with uh, big money, big ideas, um, big plantings. Uh, not the same level of passion, um, and that's the heartbreaking part of it for me. Uh, it's, it's getting back to just, um, you know, it gets to really just production values. Um, canning, I'm not excited about it you know if you want to do it fine but I, personally I'm not excited about it um, and uh, uh, it's I don't know it just for me is, is a little bit of a dumbing down mm -hmm. of uh, of the of the name that you know of the Willamette Valley that uh, we have 
worked so hard to to put up there. Um, it's not that you can stop it, uh, but uh, but you know, it's it is what it is, um, and uh, you know, there's always there's there's the good side also. You know, it's like not everyone can afford a forty, fifty, sixty dollar bottle of Pinot, and so if they introduce Pinots at twenty dollars. They probably are bringing on the, new, the next generation of, you know, uh, wine drinkers that are going to be excited to, to taste and experience that next level and who will evaluate up to, you know, being my tomorrow's consumer. So I'm, I'm not 100% purpoeing, you know, um, but um, it's, it's never a level of winemaking that I would go back to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I'm... I'm too passionate and proud um, of what I've done and what I'm doing to uh, to get into production wine, big production wine making. As you look ahead for the, for the industry, what do you see coming next in the next, say, the upcoming decade for Oregon wine? Uh, more of the same, or are there other things on the horizon that you're looking ahead to? I think there's a lot more openness to other varietals. Um, it's funny, you know. So, um, like I mentioned, I was with. Wine Secrets for a while, doing some, you know, in my consulting part, part of my career, and um, and talking to winemakers um, about some of the tools that they had to offer and what we could do for your wines, um, and oh my gosh, the what you would come up against, you know, like you know, the the crucifixes and the holy water would come out um, if you mentioned crossflow and and RO and 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 all these techniques. And and um, and I'm just like, going, oh my gosh, people, you know, I've been working with this stuff you know, 30 years ago in New Zealand. You know, <laughs> like, come on, it's it's proven. You know, um, but the Pinot. The, the the Pinot world here and was was a little whew, you know, can't touch it. Um, so that's changed. Um, you know, winemakers are uh, a lot more open to um, to the um, to working with wines. Um, there are some that still believe, and that's absolutely fine, you know, that, that, that's their philosophy. I'm not going to knock it. If they believe, I just want the expression from my site, and I'm not going to screw with it. That's the way it's come out. That's the way it is, and, and, and that's the expression. And, and that's absolutely, you know, I'm 100% supportive of that philosophy too. Um, I'm, you know, like I said, I want to make the best wine I possibly can. But um, and on those difficult years, I want to make sure those tools are available to me and other winemakers if they choose to. And and I've helped make those um, tools available. Um, yeah, the the industry is not um, as concerned about those tools on Pinot now. Um, so I think you're going to see. From those commercial um, wineries becoming more kind of generic, mm -hmm. um, I think you're going to see the openness, even from some of those wineries that are more passionate and more rigid in their winemaking philosophy, um, more open to other varietals. Um, as we're times are changing and uh, climate's changing, and markets are changing, um, 
So there's, there's, I think, a lot more openness in the in the in the industry to to change mm -hmm. than uh, ever was. Um, certainly compared to 10, 20 years ago. Um, where that's going to take us to answer your question in the next 10 years, you know, I I hadn't really thought about it too much, um, but I do predict predict um, a, a lot more um, varietal. Um, differences. I think a lot more Sauvignon Blanc. I think it's becoming um, uh, a varietal, becoming a little more passionate um, amongst winemakers here, um, and I'm really happy to be a part of that groundbreaking too. Um, uh, a lot more of the other warmer red varietals, the Tempranillos um, and uh, varietals of that that sort, um, Italian varietals, both white and red. And Spanish Spanish varietals um, coming in, so um, which hey, I'm all on board for it. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's it's great to see that variety. Um, I think that uh, we've made such a mark. Um, like if if you name a region, you know, if you name any region in, in France, you can pretty much oh yeah, that's you know. Burgundy is, but it's, it's you know it's Pinot Noir, um, um, Marseille, it's, it's Muscat. You know, it's you know you can you can pretty much name the varietal. And and I think Willamette Valley will always have, you know, it's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and and I think we can move on and, and do some other stuff without losing that history and and um, and key heritage that we have. So what about for yourself? Uh, obviously a very busy winemaker, I'm making wine multiple places. Uh, what's uh, your future look like? What are you kind of looking ahead to for the next couple, upcoming years? <laughs> um, oh, well, playing really. So um, if there's another technique, another uh, thing I can teach myself or learn, I'm, I'm still going to go ahead and do it. Um, um, varietal, like I, to be honest, I had to research, so beyond Gris. To, uh, to 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 get on board that one and, and bring it in and and uh, and if that means I'm turning heads, um, people go what the hell? Um, then rock and roll. I'm I'm doing the right thing and that's what I want to keep doing. I want to keep turning heads. Um, and so if I find another varietal out there that I think suited to this this community um, and I and I think it's good for my portfolio, then yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a stab. Um, and then techniques in the wine, winery, um, you know, um, bring on a, a, a technique and play with it. I, I remember one technique I'd, I'd worked with one year on my Pinot Gris um, because I wanted to give it a, 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 just something a little more. Um, you know, we all know sugar is a great way to add a little texture balance to a wine, and um, but I don't want my wines to be sweet, so. Um, we trialed one year with uh, Pinot Gris. We just during fermentation, because um, we all know, you know, least stirring is a technique to fatten up, get mm -hmm. that sediment up there. But uh, I wanted to get the least stirring during the fermentation, um, which you can't do, you know, because otherwise you're you're going to find a lot of your wine on the ceiling as it erupts. So, um, so I did it by pumping the fermenting wine to another tank capturing all the sediment that was already, the leaves that had already fallen out by that stage, which a lot of it is yeast, and uh, and then getting it out and oxidizing that yeast and really splashing it and getting a lot of oxygen into there to you know, speed up the autolysis and get it 
um, rip in again and then get it back on top of the wine and let it, you know, filter back through the wine. And I did that and I tasted the wine the next day and thought, oh my God, what have I done? And I was really gutted with myself. I had absolutely thought I'd screwed up. And uh, the, it, the wine tasted muddy and oxidized and I was like, oh shit. Um, and I was kind of disgusted with myself. Um, but I'm so busy with harvest that you just have to put it aside and get on with everything else. And then two weeks later, when I had a breather, um, you know, open, you know, things were getting under control, I thought, well, I have to fix this now, you know? And I went back to that wine and pulled a sample to get my head around it. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And the wine had just filled out. It was clean, the, the um, fermentation had gobbled up all the oxygen. It was rich and full and clean and um, luscious, and uh, I was like, wow. So I thought, I'm gonna keep doing this. So we, now we do this even sometimes two times to the wine during fermentation, if I have enough time to physically do that during harvest. Um, and uh, so, yeah, at the, at the risk of even ruining wine, I'll, I'll play and experiment and, and, uh, and learn and, um, I've done straw wines um, where I've laid grapes out on um, of, uh, racks of straw for 30 days. Um, I know in Austria it's meant to be 60 to be a true straw wine. I gave up after, <laughs> kind of cowardly gave up after 30. I just couldn't, you know, I, I thought, no, I don't think I can do another 30. Um, and I've done that, you know, a couple times now, um, done straw wines. Um, they make amazing wines. And uh, again, it's a, it's neat to be able to test myself and see if I can do it and, and another story I can give to uh, people out there of, um, of about wine and about my, you know, what I can do with, with wine. Uh, so what does my future hold? I don't know. But if I can find some other crazy thing to do, I'll do it for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not scared to do that. Do you still plan to stay making wine in both New Zealand and, and, and here Absolutely. for as long as you can? Absolutely, yeah. It's um, creating that, um, that connection, who I am, where I'm from, what I'm doing here. It's, it's a big part of what I want to do. Um, and I'll do it as long as I can. Um, I have three children. Whether they want to do it, I, I hope not. Um, it's, you know, if, if you want to make a buck, you know, this is not the industry. You know, we all know the jokes about it, you know, uh, making a small fortune from a big one. But um, it's, it truly is, you know, an industry of artisan and ego. And um, uh, my oldest son's already, uh, he's a chef now, gone into that industry, something he's always said he wanted to do, and I'm really happy for him. I think he's gone in the right direction. Um, my two youngins, I, I don't know where their, where their direction is. Um, uh, my youngest, when he was a little guy, said, I want to be a forklift driver just like my dad. Um, <laughs> so who knows, you know, he might be the, the little winemaker after all. But, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll, I'll do it. I don't expect it to be their thing, but I'm going to do it for as long as I, I can. all the questions that I have for you today. Anything, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything. Uh, I'm trying to think. We got everything. My career history in New Zealand, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, pretty much everything here. So pretty good. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, oh, for your welcome. stories, for your uh, wonderful humor. Always have appreciate that, and uh, we'll let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you. No, it's uh, it's good. It's wine should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.